So we open up God's Word now, and our scripture reading is from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 15, verse 33, uh, through chapter 16, verse 7. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to, to turn there so you can follow along. Now, First and Second Kings are historical books in the Old Testament section of the Bible. Uh, they're right after First and Second Samuel. They're right before First and Second Chronicles. So that actually gives you a decent chunk of that Old Testament. If you were to flip your way through there, you're going to find 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles somewhere uh, pretty easily, one of those six books, and then from there you'll be able to narrow your way down to 1st Kings. Or if you want to just skip uh, entirely, you can grab the blue Bible that's in the pew and turn right to page 377 because that's where 1st Kings 15 is located. Now, just a little bit of context. This is important. Where are we? Uh, where are we in the Bible when we come to 1st Kings 15, where are we in history? Um, and I'm going to do a little bit of this each week for the next couple months um, as we study through First and Second Kings. Uh, we need to do this historical, uh, this biblical context in order to know where we are. Even if you don't need it, I need it, so, so bear with me. Uh, because what we're doing is a, a survey of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah uh, between the, the death of King Solomon in around 930 B.C., to the fall of Jerusalem in about 586, 587 B.C., right? That's the, the period of history that we're studying in the life of, uh, of God's people. And it's a sad history, by and large, a sad history. Because after all the military victories of King David, after the unification of the 12 tribes under a single monarch, after all the splendor of King Solomon and the construction and the dedication of the temple, after all that, some very bad decisions some by Solomon himself for sure, but as we looked at last week, also by his son Rehoboam, some very bad decisions and the kingdom was split. And the ten tribes in the northern part of the kingdom rebelled against Solomon's son Rehoboam and they placed a king uh, over them named Jeroboam, right? This northern kingdom, these ten tribes that revolted, they're re rebelled, they're commonly referred to from that point forward in the, in the Bible, they're commonly referred to as Israel. And now the two tribes that were left of the original 12, 10 revolted to the north, the two that were left, Judah and Benjamin, they remained loyal to the line of David. And this southern kingdom, which included the city of Jerusalem, is commonly referred to from this point forward in the scripture as the kingdom of Judah. And so that's where we stopped last week, right after this split. That was in 1 Kings chapter 12. Now this week, I just told you, we're at the end of chapter 15, the beginning of chapter 16, so it's logical for you to ask, okay, what happened since 1 Kings 12, since this split? Well, in Judah, in the south, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he reigned for about 17 years. And you, you, you might remember, if you were here, that Rehoboam had tried to raise an army to go squash the rebellion in the, in the north. The Lord stopped him, Rehoboam listened, but that doesn't mean that Rehoboam turned Judah back to the Lord, no. No, actually, he continued to allow the, the worship of false gods uh, from, from the surrounding nations, a, a practice that had begun actually under his father Solomon for all of his wisdom. Solomon was the one who brought in the worship of these fallen, fallen, uh, foreign gods into the kingdom. But it got even worse under Rehoboam, under his son. In those 17 years, it got even worse. And then he died. And Rehoboam's son, Abijam, uh, he assumed the throne for about three years, and the pattern continued conflict with the north, worship of false gods, things were bad in Judah. Now, meanwhile, in the north, things were even worse. Remember, they appointed a king. They called this guy Jeroboam. They made him king. Well, King Jeroboam, he was afraid that if he let the, 
if, if he kept the borders open and he let the people travel to Jerusalem to the south to worship Yahweh, to worship the, the, the God of the Bible there in Jerusalem, um, he was worried that they would actually want to follow the Lord, that they would no longer be loyal to him. So what Jeroboam did is, you know what, let's set up our own sites of worship. And that's what he did. He set up two alternative worship sites in the northern part of the kingdom, right? We'll, we'll put forth our alternatives here. Uh, two northern cities, Bethel and Dan, and he put two golden calves, ironic if you know your history uh, of Israel, put two golden calves there and said, okay, worship these. Now, nonetheless, despite this, the Lord allowed Jeroboam to rule for about 22 years, and when he dies, his son Nadab takes over. Now, Nadab is Jeroboam's son, right? And he's evil too. And he continues to lead the northern kingdom of Israel into sin. He doesn't last that long, only about a year or so. Because along comes this guy, Basha, from the tribe of Issachar, another one of the ten northern tribes. And Basha says, hey, I think I'd like to get in on this king thing. And that's where we find ourselves in 1 Kings 15, when we come to this morning's text. All right, so let me ask you to stand as I, as I read this. Um, and when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord, a significant declaration. And I'm going to invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. All right. 1 Kings chapter 15, starting at verse 33. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Tirzah. And he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hananiah, and against Basha, saying, since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel a sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Basha slept with his fathers and was buried at Tirzah, and Elah his son reigned in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu the son of Hanani against Basha and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam and also because he destroyed it. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, what's my job here this morning? Well, narrowly speaking, it's to explain what we just read in 1 Kings 15, 33 to 16, 7. But more broadly, uh, it's to get you to care. <laughs> right? right? Because in other words, we not only need to understand a passage like this, but we need to understand why it's so important. I, I, I've told you before, um, if you've been around, I've told you before that sometimes I will, for, for kicks and ha-has, uh, go on an app called Sermon Audio, um, and uh, because Sermon Audio houses a, lots of um, preaching and teaching, and I sometimes will look up the text that I'm preaching on in, uh, in Sermon Audio. Lots of churches use Sermon Audio. They post their recordings, their sermons there from very, very well-known pastors and teachers to very small churches that very few people have heard of. They use Sermon Audio, and sometimes after I've done my personal study of the passage, I'll listen to a to a few of them, for example, my brother, his church posts uh, sermons on, on Sermon Audio, so I'll always listen to my brother. If he's preached on a text, I don't want to inadvertently start a family thing if I say something different than what he said. 
you know. So, but here's my point. If I go to sermon audio and I type in John chapter 1, verse 1, right, which is one of the passages we looked at in December when we were preparing for, for Christmas. If I type in John chapter 1, verse 1, guess how many sermons came up? I counted, right? 496, right? 500 sermons related to John chapter 1. Right now, like I said, just for kicks and ha-has, I typed in the other day, 1 Kings 15.33. Guess how many came up? Six. Only two were actually about the text. Some of them just referenced it. Right? An assignment of, of value for sure, right? How do, you, how do you judge sort of the collective value according to the, according to the church of a particular text? The amount of time and energy that pastors spend on John chapter 1 is about 100 times that which pastors spend on 1 Kings chapter 15. So why should we care about 1 Kings 15, 33 to 6, 7? Why not just go back to John chapter 1 and spend two months studying John 1? You could, by the way, spend two months studying John 1. There's enough meat on that bone to study John 1 for, for two months. Well, we're here in 1 Kings 15 because, I suppose as a starting point, because we convictionally do believe that the entirety of the Bible is God's Word. And so there is something for us in 1 Kings 15, just like there would be in John chapter 1. But building off of that, there's something that's really pragmatic for us, because if the entire Bible is God's Word, then that means that there is something for us to learn on every page. And sometimes, right, while the bigger fish might be found in the, in the ocean, a text like John 1, sometimes the fish are, are maybe a little bit more easily seen in a smaller stream. And sometimes you're able to do that when you come to a more a more obscure text. So let's wade into this stream together. Let's look at what we might, what we might learn from this obscure King Basha uh, that you've probably never heard of. Uh, because in this story of this obscure king from this northern tribe of Israel, uh, we see how God judges leaders, sinful leaders, and how he also offers grace, how his word speaks into even situations of evil. So in just a few minutes, let's look at what we can learn about it. Um, start with the judgment of sin. Right? The judgment, there's judgment by the king and judgment of the, of the king that's happening here. Let's understand the text, both the, the, the context, what comes before it, and, and what we read. Now, really, judgment by the king, which is the first bullet point that I have in the bulletin. This is really speaking about how Basha became king. We read in verse 33, we read that, that Basha began to reign over all Israel. Right? That's the northern kingdom, right? We talked about that when we hear Israel. We see Israel. We're talking usually, not always, but usually... Uh, we're talking about the northern kingdom from this point forward in the biblical narrative. Um, and he reigned there for 24 years. But remember the circumstances. You have to understand the circumstances. And they're described earlier in chapter 15. Right? This is what happened. This is how Basha came to power. Right? You had Jeroboam, the original rebel in the, uh, against the rule of David's line. Well, he does evil in the sight of the Lord. And then his son, Nadab, became king. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what it says in, in verse 26 of, of chapter 15. Nadab did evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father Jeroboam and in his sin which he made Israel to sin. We didn't read that. that. That's right before the text. That's what Jeroboam and what his son Nadab did. Now, Nadab didn't last long, remember, because along comes Basha. And I told you, Basha said, hey, I'd like to get in on this king thing. It sounds good. And so he conspires against Nadab and Basha kills him. Kills the king. And for good measure kills all of his relatives, and takes over as king. Right, now, here's the very interesting thing. Basha is acting, right? If you've if you got your Bibles open, right? Go back to verse 29 of chapter 15. 
Basha is acting, it says, according to the word of the Lord. Because Basha's treachery and his conspiracy, his coup against King Nadab, they weren't just predicted by the Lord, they were actually an instrument of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? An instrument of judgment against Jeroboam and his son Nadab and their entire house because of the evil that they had done in leading the people away from the Lord. Right? That's what it says. Chapter 15, verse 30. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. That's why. That's why Basha was raised up and that's why he killed the king and that's why he became king. Jeroboam, the original king of the breakaway tribe, right? Then his son Nadab, they sinned against God and they made Israel to sin. And God was patient. 21 years of Jeroboam, right? Another year or so of Nadab. But then sin had reached its appointed time and God used Basha to punish the sin of Jeroboam and his house. That's the first point. Right? So what do we have here? We have the judgment of sin by the king. Right? But Basha isn't innocent either, right? Obviously, if you've been listening, right? <laughs> so then in chapter 16, we see Basha rise to the, the throne and we see him become an object of judgment as well. Right? In other words, we don't just see we don't just see here God's judgment by King Basha. That's point number one. We see God's judgment of King Basha. Right now, the first seven verses of chapter, um, uh, of, of, of the chapter, verses one to, one to seven of chapter 16, they, they cover a lot of ground. Right? 24 years covered in those seven verses. But suffice it to say that while Basha was an instrument of God's judgment against Jeroboam's house, he actually wasn't any better himself. Right? So Jeroboam and Jeroboam's house, right? they were evil, they were judged, but Basha, he wasn't any better. He might not be a part of Jeroboam's family, but he continued the family tradition. Chapter 15, verse 34, right? Basha did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of who? In the way of who? In the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. You see that? Different family, same traditions. And so the king, who was an instrument of God's judgment, becomes himself the object of God's judgment now in chapter 16. That's what we see. And a, a prophet now is sent by God to deliver the news. Look at what he says. This is verse, uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 16. Since I, this is the Lord talking, since I exalted you, talking to Basha, I exalted you, I gave you your place, right? Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over the people of Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins. Behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house. Now hint, it's never a good sign when the Lord is talking to you about you in the third person. It's not good. Right? Behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house. He's like, wait, weren't you talking to me? Oh yeah, you're talking about me to me. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. So in other words, Basha, you want to follow in Jeroboam's family traditions? You can follow in Jeroboam's fate. That is, you'll be dead and you'll be cursed. That's what verse 4 means. It's pretty graphic, but that's how the prophecy concludes. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens shall eat. In other words, no burial no respect for the fallen, no dignity, the scavengers, the dogs, the vultures, they're going to feast on the bodies of the dead. Okay? And so Basha dies too. Rises to the throne, 1533, dies, chapter 16, verse 5. Right? 24 years, but it's really simply told 
in God's economy of words here, rise, six verses later, six verses later, fall. That's the story of King Basha. And you say, well, that's, that's, that's very interesting. But what you're really thinking is, can we please go back to John chapter 1? Which is why the last point, the whole last point, which is where I'll spend a little bit more time, the last point in the outline, where is God in all this? And I want us to see, he's right in the middle of it all. It's really just another way of saying we need to take a minute and we need to review the takeaways. We need to review, review the lessons here. I, I try to do this in every sermon, but particularly in these texts through First and Second Kings, I think with studies like this, we really need to be obvious. We need to be explicit in answering the so what questions. So let's see what are the lessons, what are the takeaways where we see God in the middle of it all. And there's five. Okay? So, so I didn't give these to you in your bulletin. There's five. If you're taking notes, here's your, here's your opportunity. There's at least five lessons for us. First lesson, sin is boring. Sin is boring. The Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis, you'll continue to hear me mention his name a lot in the next couple of months. Dale Ralph Davis, he completely acknowledges texts like this in the Bible are boring, right? right? That's what he says. You're thinking it, he said it out loud. But it's boring, he says. He says it's boring, though, for a reason. He says, texts like this are boring, quote, because they are records of sinful men who simply repeat the sins and evil of those before them. And then he says something very insightful about sin. He says, sin is never creative. It's never creative, but merely imitative and repetitious. Sin is never creative, but merely imitative and repetitious. He says, maybe you can sin with a flair, but you can't sin with freshness. You can only ape what's already been done. Now, he says goodness, in contrast, goodness has an originality that's inherent in it. He says, but, quote, evil can distort and ruin and corrupt and do reruns, but it can't be original, not even scintillating. Evil carries a built-in yawn. What tedious stuff. He says, if the Bible is boring, blame Basha. It's his fault. You see what he's saying? It's similar to actually to what C.S. Lewis wrote when he said that badness is only spoiled goodness. Badness is not original. Badness can claim no credit. Badness just simply takes goodness and spoils it. Evil is a parasite. It's not an original thing. That's what Lewis said. There's no originality to sin. It's only spoiled goodness. In other words, it's boring. There's no creativity in evil. Right? So when you hear that Basha did evil in the sight of the Lord, it's boring because it's common. And what's the lesson for us? Life without God is dull and it's common. So aspire to something more and to something greater. Be interesting. See, the temptation of many is the lie that life without God is exciting. That, 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 that God is the one who's boring. But that's a lie. And God's great gift to us when he opens our eyes is to recognize that he is actually the one who brings true, lasting, ultimate excitement and freedom from boredom. And the sooner we realize it, the better we'll be. That's lesson number one. Don't set up for boring repetition. Six verses summarized in a common refrain. Don't let that be your life, right? That's lesson number one. Sin is boring. Now, lesson number two, you can't not live in God's world. You can't not live in God's world. That's a double negative. I know, one snow day, my grammar goes to, to mush, but it's intentional. I say it that way, right? Because, it's, it, because that's what we try to do. We try to not live in God's world as if we could escape it. But we can't. We can't not live in God's world. 
Basha tries. Basha, like Jeroboam, like Nadab, he tries. He's the king of Israel. He makes, chapter 15, Israel to sin, but in doing so, he provokes the God, verse 30, the God who is the God of Israel. In other words, the king of Israel tried to break away from the God of Israel, but you can't do that. God is still here, identified as the God of Israel. Even in Israel that tries to walk away from, that tries to escape the world, his world, we'll set up our own gods, we'll do our own thing. He's still the God of that Israel. Because you can't not live in God's world. Because God remains for Israel, even in its rebellion, whether they like it or not, the God of Israel. There's no way you can hide from Him. No place where you can escape from Him. No bedroom door you can shut. No bathroom door you can lock. No incognito browser app that you can activate. And, and that's not simply a warning to the, to the sinner. It should be a profound comfort to the sinner that you can't not live in His world. That's God's grace because you don't want to be in any room without God because his presence even when it takes the form of discipline God's presence is a reminder that you're dying and that verse 4 will ultimately come for all of us and that we're in trouble his presence graciously reminds us of our sin it's the it's the comfort of the of the prophet. And then when you come to those moments when you're confronted with the depth of your sin, the amazing news is that God hasn't abandoned you. He's still there. You can't, you may have tried, but you can't not live in his, in his world. That's lesson two. Lesson three, God rules history. Uh, not only is God still here, God's still in charge, right? And at, at no point in narratives like this, do we see anything but God being the one who is orchestrating the events of history? Right? This could be, this, this actually probably will be a takeaway from every text we study this winter in First and Second Kings. And we need to hear it every week. The timeline of history is strung by God. All of it. Every point on the line is there by his design. I want you to notice something. Uh, that we see in this text that's actually very important for understanding first and second kings look, look at whenever a king is mentioned and this isn't just true in this text but i want you to see it in this text whenever a king is mentioned and the years of his reign are noted it's always dated in reference to another king you notice that now look at chapter 15 verse 33 in the third year of asa king of judah basha began to reign right when was that when was the start of basha's reign the third year of asa king of judah you see the same thing when Basha's son becomes king in 16.8. It was the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah. That's how these kings were dated. Now, it wasn't just the northern kings were dated this way. If you go back earlier, you look at chapter 15, verse 9. You see that Asa, the king of Judah, he became king of Judah when? In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel. That's the dating convention. And it isn't just for Jewish kings. If you look at the way that Luke, in the New Testament, describes the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the cousin, the cousin of Jesus, how does Luke describe, how does he date the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry? Luke 3.1, this is how it starts. He says it occurred in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the Roman monarch. Same convention. It was common practice all over the ancient world. It's called regnal dating, Latin lesson. Rex, regus, means king. So regnal dating is just simply kingly dating dating by the the king now sometimes in ancient cultures it would be dynastic dating asian cultures would do it this way like the Qin dynasty the ming dynasty not just a date that's tied to a king but the start of a king's 
line, but the point, the principle is the same. A king or a dynasty will ultimately end and die out, and then the clock needs to be reset. Now, as you might imagine, this understands, uh, this makes understanding history rather difficult, kind of confusing, because instead of one timeline, you've got all these little timelines that all need to be pieced together like a, like a puzzle. All these different timelines, all these different kings, all trying to define history in the timeline of the world in reference to them. Now that, if there ever is one, is a picture of our sinful world. Everyone with their own calendar marching according to their own timeline. Right? That's like the definition of sin. All of history fragmented into tiny little puzzle pieces in desperate need of someone to assemble the big picture. And that's ultimately what God would do. When you see dating like this in the Old Testament or in places like 1 Kings, it ought to remind you that God, exact, that God was the one to exactly do that, that he was the one to step into history and say, I'm going to take all these pieces and I'm going to show you how they all fit together in one continuous timeline. Right? He wouldn't actually replace the concept of regnal dating, but he would send a perfect king, a final king, who would never do evil to reset the timeline of history. Right? Unify all the fragments, assemble all the pieces of the puzzle, and allow us to see the God of all history in a straight line. Every time you write 2024, you're acknowledging that, right? That a king came, that more than 2,000 years ago, and, and, and when he came, he reset the clock, and he reset the clock permanently. Whether the world acknowledges it or not, there is no other way of explaining modern, modern dating than the arrival of Jesus Christ into history. Every year before his birth counts down to his arrival. Every year since that time comes, up, come, comes from the same moment. We live in the year of King Jesus, the year of our Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that this erases regnal dating, right? It doesn't replace regnal dating, no, where the clock resets and the king dies. No, I think you can safely say that that practice with the coming of Jesus, that it remains. The difference is this king, King Jesus, unlike King Rehoboam, unlike King Jeroboam, unlike Asa or Abasha, this king, King Jesus, is still alive. His clock still runs. His clock will continue to run, and it'll continue to run forever. We still live in the year of our Lord. That's good news. Right, these events in 1 Kings and 15, they all happen. They always happen according to the word of the Lord, the one who controls the timeline of history. That's lesson number three. Now, two more, quickly, and maybe more personally as we end. Right, what do we learn from this passage? Lesson number four. Don't presume God's favor. Don't presume God's favor. Big mistake that Basha could have made when he killed King Rehoboam, according to the word of the Lord. He killed, that's what it says. He killed King Rehoboam, uh, King, um, uh, Rehoboam's son, I should say. He killed Rehoboam's son, according to the word of the Lord. But the catastrophic mistake that he could have made, the, the catastrophic mistake that he, that he apparently did make, was to presume that being God's instrument makes you God's man. You hear what I just said? We should never presume that being God's instrument makes you God's man or God's woman because Basha was used as an instrument of judgment against the house of, of Rehoboam because Rehoboam of sin, had sinned. And as God's instrument, he enjoyed 24 years as king. That was God's doing, but don't mistake that for God's blessing, which means, big picture lesson, as you consider the world around us, as you consider elections of leaders this year, here in the United States or other countries around the world, right? We can have confidence 
As we consider these things, lesson number three, remember that God is at work, that it's his timeline, that he's got everything under control, and that whoever is president of the United States or whoever is a leader of any country, whoever leads a nation is there because God and God has put him there, put her there, put them there as instruments in his hands, whether that person acknowledges it or not. But do not confuse use by God as the blessing of God. It doesn't exempt one's own accountability for their sin, right? That was true for Judas. It was true for Pontius Pilate. It's true for you. It's true for me. God may have blessed you in wonderful ways, given you success in business and success in ministry. People may encounter you and think that you're wise and think you're helpful. You might be an instrument of God, but unless you bring your sin to the king who sits at the hinge of human history, Unless you confess it, submit yourself to his lordship, you will not have God's blessing. And like Basha, you will die in the curse. That's a sobering word. But there's one more takeaway, one last lesson. You gotten them all? Lesson one, sin is boring. Lesson two, you can't not live in God's world. Lesson three, God rules history. Lesson four, don't presume upon God's favor. Finally, lesson five, God still speaks. I told you that the basic narrative of this obscure, boring text, right, 1 Kings 15, 33 to 7, that no one ever preaches, the basic story is simple. King comes to power, that's how it begins. King dies, that's how it ends. But it's, one, it's what's in the middle that I want us to, to look at as we conclude. What's in the middle of the beginning and the end of the story? What happens in the middle? What comes to Basha in the, in, in the middle between his beginning and, between, and his ending? What comes to him? The word of the Lord. That's what comes. And yeah, it's a word against Basha, against him. But given where Basha was, a word against him is a word of grace. If only he had listened. Warning is grace. And each of us, I don't care if you're a murderer like Basha or just like all of us, a worshiper of idols and false gods, each of us needs to be reminded that we live right now in verses 1 to 4, not yet in verses 5 and 6. If you are sitting here in front of me, your friends, your neighbors, they don't let yet live in verses 5 and 6. They live in verses 1 to 4. In other words, story isn't over. The word of the Lord is speaking. Between your introduction and between your conclusion, God is speaking to you. He's calling to you in the midst of your rebellion. And he's calling you to turn back to him, to embrace the excitement of his goodness, reject the boredom of sin. Bosch's story is written. It's here for us to read. It's over. It's only a handful of verses. His story is over. Yours isn't. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that comes to us in the midst of the repetitious and boring sin of our own hearts and our own lives. Help us, Lord, to recognize its futility and to turn to you. Help us to see the excitement that comes only from you, the God who controls all of history. The Jesus, who himself is the hinge of everything that we know. Pray, Lord, that we would put ourselves into your hands through him. That we would entrust our lives. That we would bring to you our sin and our rebellion. That we would find forgiveness there because of what Jesus has done. For we do come praying in his name. Amen.